Well, did everybody have a good lunch? Boy, this is, uh, you feed your guests well. I'm going to go home uh, having to work out. Well, uh, this is what I was asked to be talking about, but I'm no good at sharing my faith. And in a way, of course, I'm the wrong guy to talk about it because you've just heard the right guy talk about it and really almost invert how we think of it. Uh, so I'm going to approach it also somewhat elliptically. Uh, what I was asked to talk about was... Um, to go into uh, just unpacking a little bit more of the, this integration box, these integration spheres uh, that we've been talking about. I'll do that briefly. And then I thought I'd, I'd just um, mix it up a bit and just tell some stories of how I see people integrating faith and work, and maybe a couple of them will resonate with you. Maybe they're your story, uh, or maybe it's one that you can um, uh, somehow latch onto and create your own story. Uh, but we've got to start with the cartoon. This is my all-time favorite cartoon, by the way. <laughs> if you can't read it in the back, of course, it's a New Yorker cartoon. It says, of course, I hope to find gold. It's these grubby gold miners. Uh, but my real goal is spiritual growth and inner peace. <laughs> but there's something to that, isn't there? Think of all the folks we know that, uh, you know, we say this. It's, it's, this. it's a great example of this compartmentalization. They're panning for gold. They want that mammon, but they want the spiritual peace. Yeah. Connecting the dots. Here's another one that's just sort of fun. I think uh, a lot of business folks feel like that. They feel like they're caught between a rock and a hard place or the devil and God, and, and, uh, and they even feel half-painted as that. And look at that guy's compartmentalization right down the center, right down the center. Well, this is what we're going to try to do. As I mentioned, I'll talk a little bit about these spheres, um, give you some faith of work stories, and then just have open mic. If there's a bit of a time, we'll just do a little Q&A before we have the whole panel come up for a broader uh, Q&A, which uh, David will, uh, will moderate, if I understand correctly. Well, um, let's see. Maybe we get to do this twice with so much. Oh, here we are. Well, let me make a few points on, on the, the integration box. You'll notice, and, as, and if, if you were paying close attention to Catherine, which I'm sure you were, that she um, used a different word. And if you look at my book, I also use a different word. For this setting, I contextualize the message, and rightly or wrongly, the one E that I call expression, uh, I call evangelism, in my book I call expression. Because I wanted this model when I designed it to work for uh, all faith traditions. And not all faith traditions believe in evangelizing. Now, several do. Uh, of the, the big five. Christians, of course, do. Muslims do. Uh, uh, Hindus don't really. Uh, some Buddhists do, and Jews certainly don't. So there's a, a different way of, of thinking about it. So I use the phrase expression, and then all of a sudden that model works for everybody. Because whatever you are, how do you express your faith in a public setting? Is it through words, through deeds? And when you are expressing it, what's the objective? What's the telos? What's the goal? What's the aim? What's the purpose? Why are you doing it? So rightly or wrongly, I, I called it evangelism here, but, I, but Catherine mentioned expression. That's probably because what you think about with your group in New York, and, and I think that's probably the, the more appropriate term. So I wanted to uh, just flag that uh, 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 as, as a possible learning point and a linguistic point. Words really do matter. Uh, Michael could not have uh, been more correct on that. How we say these things uh, matters. And the posture of listening and asking qualifying questions before we truck out all of our wonderful thoughts is really, uh, really the way to go with these. The second thing, if uh, I didn't make clear enough in our earlier talk, is these, these different spheres, they're all biblically based. 
They're all biblically based. They're all theologically sound. They're based on the tradition and the part of the world you grew up in and the community you grew up in. Maybe only one or two are accented, or, uh, but, but really they're, they're all profoundly theological. And neither one is the only one or the best one. And some people might fight about which might have priority or preference over another, but I would argue they all ought to be in a healthy, wonderful tension, feeding and influencing each other. And if there's any goal or challenge I give you is get out of your comfort zone. Whatever one is the one you're best at or most naturally do, that's great. Continue. Ask yourself, which is the one that makes you most squeamish or you do the least well or you think the least about? That's where I'd urge you to go. Start praying and thinking and working about that, working on that sphere. And don't feel bad if you blow it or get it wrong or uh, aren't diligent or aren't consistent. Practice. It'll come. I'm convinced that just like we, and I teach this to my, in, in my ethics course, both to students uh, as well as to uh, corporations where I do ethics training for executives, that um, just as we can stay physically fit by running or working out or walking, whatever our sport or exercise might be, I believe we can also stay ethically fit by practicing and thinking about dilemmas that we invariably will encounter and how we will respond. But equally, we could say spiritually fit. We could stay spiritually fit through our practices, our disciplines, our habits, both what we do and, equally important, what we don't do. So what were the things we talked about? Just to recap, these are the four different spheres. It's that sweet spot in the middle that I'm suggesting is the, the uh, desired uh, mature Christian life place to be. This is the first one here. And this cartoon is... Right out of the Wall Street Journal. And, of course, this would be the expression box. Is that right? Quick quiz. You all got that one? Uh, and, it, yeah, isn't it uh, uh, sad for some of us who might be known as uh, uh, a, a clanging gong and that we just want to run away when we see someone like that? And, frankly, sometimes I see some of my Christian brothers and sisters where I just wince when they start their, their speech uh, without ever, ever uh, listening first and finding out where the conversation is meant to go. So, that's evangelism or expression. Now, which, which one is this? Are these just guidelines or actual new policies? Which sphere is this? Ethics, exactly. And the next one we'll look at, let's see if you're, oops, so this one is easy. Yeah, I gave it away. I clicked too fast. If you look for it, you'll, it's amazing how often there are undertones, not ringtones, undertones of religion and religious thought used in advertising. So, of course, that's experience. Do you experience your work as a calling or just a job to pay the rent? And what's our last one going to be? You sort of know the answer. Let's see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, like, wow, I don't have to do this. <laughs> yeah. So this would, of course, be what? Enrichment, that you can step back and you can approach your work a little bit differently than everybody else does. So those are the spheres. I hope they give you helpful handholds and you see them with a certain fluidity. 
uh, and a certain challenge. Uh, and again, remember, they're all, of course, as I say, profoundly uh, biblically-based. And I call the everywhere integrator uh, the fifth type, if you will, and that's the, the place we should all be aiming to be in the middle. Well, what's the next thing I was going to do? Uh, let's see. Tell you some stories. Let me tell you some stories. What do I have up here? Tyson Foods, Trading Floor, Clean Bill, Sex in the City, and Halftime Book. Which one do you want to hear first? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. <laughs> I'm not going to do that one first. <laughs> Halftime Book. How many of you know Bob Buford? You may know the name, and he wrote a book called Halftime. And Bob's a friend of mine. Uh, uh, he's uh, uh, from Texas. Um, and actually, yeah, Yankees and Texans actually do become friends. It's a neat, it's a neat thing. He uh, made a, a bundle of money in the uh, cable TV business, uh, sold it, and then established a foundation, uh, and essentially has done some very innovative work with large church ministries called Leadership Network. And he's also uh, built around the design of this book, uh, this concept of halftime. He's worked with people who are people of resource and significant wealth and what he calls social entrepreneurs to help them solve some of the world's problems, be they global problems or problems in, in their backyard, in their community. Uh, the subtitle of the book is more or less the following words, moving from success to significance. Halftime, of course, a sporting metaphor, a life metaphor, halfway through the game of life. What are you going to do in the remaining part of your years? And this moving from success to significance is essentially saying, okay, you made a bundle of money, but it really wasn't significant. So what are you going to do now to pay back, to give back to society, make the world a better place? Well, Bob and I have this running battle. I think it's a wonderful book, and it's a wonderful question for about half a percent of the U.S. population, that there is a small group of people who have been called, after they've made tons of money, which is marvelous, they've been called to put that aside, stop doing that, and to go do, focus on their charitable work, their philanthropic work, philanthropic work which indeed is extremely important and needs to be done. But there's two theological problems I have with his overarching argument. One is that the work that they've been doing is significant all along. And we need, as the phrase goes, godly men and women or people who are trying to be godly in the hunt, in the race, in those tough jobs, in those challenging jobs, in those boring jobs, in those exhilarating jobs. We need people of faith there. And to diminish and demean the work as if that's not meaning and the only people of meaningful work are people who work in 501c3s and charities and the caring professions, so-called caring professions, and who wear collars is sloppy theology. The book I'm working on is, um, I'm playing a little bit with his title, and he knows this, so it's, it's good fun amongst friends. And he wouldn't disagree, I think, too much with what I've just said, uh, to be fair to uh, uh, Bob. Uh, he just had a different accent because it was his story of, of his life that he was capturing. But the book I'm working on is going to be called Full-Time, Finding Significance in Your Success. Full-Time, Finding Significance in Your Success. Because the Christian life, back to the comment earlier, oh, I wish I were in full-time ministry. Well, we're all in full-time ministry. And how do we find significance in it when sometimes it doesn't seem like it's very significant? My wife and I, Karen, we're having a, a debate, a family debate. I know who's going to win, so the title will probably change. She doesn't think I should use uh, the, the phrase success because a lot of businesses and a lot of our careers, they're, they're, uh, they're okay. You know, they're satisfactory, but they're maybe not number one success. So how do we find significance in failure? 
How do we find significance in being satisfactory? Those are also important theological questions. Not everyone is going to be a number one performer. We are twos, threes, and fours, and fives. So how do we find significance even in the dark times in our life? I knew a man who uh, uh, a lot of... I understand why this happens, but it sometimes gnaws at me. We see lots of books that come out that highlight sort of Christian superstars, and we highlight their stories, and we hear their testimonies, uh, and, and they are good, and it's good to have models of Christian excellence in our various spheres of life, and they are motivating in many cases. But a friend of mine wanted to write a story on Christians who had failures, and you know what? He couldn't get anyone to volunteer. Publicly, they didn't want to go on record as these are their, these are their failures. And I, I understand why, in some cases, some of these people, their failures may have been so deep and so personal and so hurtful that it's not appropriate for it to be in the public domain. Uh, but for others, it may be just um, pride that we're afraid to, to tell of our mistakes. Earlier, I mentioned this Greenwich Leadership Forum group that um, I lead in Greenwich, Connecticut. And about half the time, as I said, I, I teach on thematic things uh, that are going on in the Wall Street Journal or people's daily lives. And the other half, I bring in visiting CEOs and senior executives. And the, the, the sessions where I brought in CEOs that are the most effective, uh, as based on what people tell me afterwards, if, if they're being honest, I guess, is, is when, the, when I probe the CEO and say, tell me some of the really stupid things you did. Tell me some of the things you wish you could take back. And, and sometimes tears just happen amongst the group listening because they can all resonate. They've been there or they've done their version of that. So finding significance in our success, in our averageness, and in our failures is part of the, the Christian walk. What should we do now? Let's do, uh, well, we're on to failures. Let's talk about sex in the city. Um, sex in the CEO suite, sex at work. Uh, that happens all the time, and a lot of times it's inappropriate and, and not, a, not a good thing. Uh, about, you may remember three years ago, two and a half years ago, the CEO of Boeing, uh, uh, Henry Stone Seifert, this is all public knowledge, I'm not, I don't know him personally, but public knowledge, he had been brought in, uh, Boeing had a, had a number of ethical uh, lapses, major ones, for which the government fined them lots and lots of money, uh, millions and millions of dollars, and they were starting to get a reputation for not really taking ethics seriously. Every company could forgive them a mistake or two because stuff happens, but it seemed to be a systemic problem at Boeing. And he was a straight arrow, uh, I think he was a good old boy from the South, Tennessee or somewhere, he talked tough, he talked straight, and he made it clear that uh, uh, that they were going to be an ethical organization. And by all accounts, he was an excellent executive, and by all accounts, he believed everything he said. Um, the unfortunate problem that emerged is that he was married and ended up having an affair with one of his employees. Uh, I don't think she was a direct report, but nonetheless, everyone essentially reports to a, a CEO. Now, the sad reality is, is that happens in everybody's lives, not everybody, many people's lives. You don't have to, uh, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, we make these mistakes. These things happen. I'm sure it's happened to some of you in this room. So how do you recover when that happens? Um, so he got fired. That's what the board did. And then uh, two weeks later, I got a call at uh, 6 a.m., a little before 6 a.m., my time, from another friend who obviously I'm not going to mention who, who is a CEO of another company. And he had just been charged by one of his employees for having a one-night stand, an adulterous stand, uh, uh, with this person. And he was devastated. And a lot of the board members he knew were also people of faith, and he figured he was toast. 
uh, and he asked, I had been doing some advisory, some one-on-one work with him, and, and, um, and he said, I just got to talk to you about this, and he unburdened himself. And, of course, we all knew the Stone Cipher story was just in the, in the news a, a couple days ago. He also was a publicly traded company, and he was right. He was probably about to be fired, and some of these board members were uh, very, how should we say, strict in their accent on law and, and behavior. Um, but you know what? That board, because of two things, one is he right away admitted what he did and didn't hide it, and he offered his resignation immediately instead of trying to say, oh, give me a second chance or anything. And he made very clear he was deeply repentful of this or repentant of this, uh, that the board, after a long weekend of debate and one or two phone calls that uh, I was uh, involved in, they decided, in fact, to give him a second chance. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, And this man began rebuilding his life at great personal cost, financial cost, uh, relational cost, credibility cost uh, in his company, and needless to say, with his wife. And uh, happily, uh, it's a happy end story where their uh, marriage is better than before uh, and his credibility has been restored. But it, it, it reminds me that some of the great leaders and stories we see, are they are the, uh, the King Davids of the world uh, who fall. Uh, and when we, uh, there are chances for redemption and grace. Not always. Sometimes we pay prices that uh, haunt us for the rest of our lives, the rest of our careers. Uh, but this man got a second chance. Uh, it, and interesting enough, he was not um, a Christian. He was a cultural Christian uh, when this all started. Uh, and uh, surprise, surprise, through the process of what he's gone through, guess what's happened? And largely because of the witness of the board members who he just thought were going to just fry him. He was stunned. And it reminds me of uh, that great, great uh, parable of a uh, uh, story of Jesus uh, with a woman caught in adultery. You remember that? Uh, everyone's about ready to stone her. And he casts out those great words, which, of course, are often hurled against Christians. Ye without sin cast them, may cast the first stone. We forget sometimes the end of that parable. Do you remember what happens? Jesus goes and writes something in the sand, and we don't know what. It's not recorded in the text. And then he says to the women, essentially, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So it was wrong behavior that was gracefully forgiven. But she was told, go play it straight now. Another man, it's not up here in the list, but uh, this is uh, uh, also public knowledge. I know some private parts of it, uh, but the public parts I'll share. Uh, Works for a large Swiss bank. He'd been a straight arrow guy. He was their general counsel for their investment banking arm. And... uh, uh, the highest um, sort of ethical rectitude, tough guy, smart as a whip, Columbia Law. Uh, and I heard him give an ethics talks to senior executives. We sort of did a, a roadshow thing together. And he's clearly a very impressive man, and I think believed everything he was saying. Uh, back in November, uh, he got an internal memo, uh, internal email, I should say, that uh, about the auction uh, uh, rate securities that that market was drying up, and he calls his broker uh, uh, five minutes after this and says to sell um, $250,000 of his own holdings in those securities. Not a good idea. That tends to be called insider trading. He knew that. He's a lawyer, for heaven's sakes. Now, technically, he may have been right that the kind of securities he sold were not quite the same category of market rate securities as the other. So he might have sort of kind of been technically okay, but it was obviously unethical, obviously not what you want your general counsel doing. 
Uh, Andrew Cuomo, the uh, Attorney General for the State of New York, uh, launched an investigation and ended up suing him and four other executives who did a similar thing. He had to uh, resign. Um, just last week, just yeah, last week it was announced that he had a settlement with the SEC for uh, $6.5 million, and pleading no contest, uh, and he can't serve in the securities industry for two years and can't practice law in the state of New York again. This man was hoping to get a cabinet position in the next administration. He was that senior, that good, that smart, that ethical, but he made one lapse, one lapse. So I sit there thinking as a follower of Christ, well, what's my next lapse that I got? I mean, I was pretty good last week. I didn't do anything wrong last week. Well, not too much wrong last week, but how do, how do, how do, you, how do we all avoid that, that, that lapse? The phrase I use when I teach ethics is, uh, uh, some of you may have heard me talk about it. I have five questions I ask my students, and the fifth and final question I ask them, both students as in kids as well as when I teach adults, uh, the la- fifth and final question I ask is, how do you stay ethically fresh? How do you stay ethically fresh? And within this communion context, I say, what role does your faith play in helping you stay ethically fresh? So we're not the next embarrassment and oh, by the way, as we know, it's clergy too. It's not just people in the marketplace. We've all seen too many sad stories trumpeted around the newspapers, and you've, I'm sure, had them in your own communities where beloved pastors have done things that they deeply regret. How do you stay ethically fresh? So, and those are a couple stories about uh, missteps. Um, clean bill. What do I mean by that? Clean bill. I gave a talk just, uh, I was mentioning this to David over the break, and we were talking with um, uh, uh, another person about how, and how some jobs just seem so monotonous, monotonous and routine. Let's say you're in the billing department, and, and you, know, you may work with really neat people, and it might be sort of fun because of the community that are there, but the work itself, maybe you could take it or leave it. It's hard to uh, impute godly work in it. Like when I hear Michael going off and doing it, he's doing the majority. It's like, wow, that's pretty awesome. I mean, that gets me, you know, Way to go. That's great stuff. But he would probably say, no, but the stuff you're doing, the stuff you're doing, you're doing, that's also, we're all part of the body of Christ. It's all the whole, the whole Corinthians thing. We're all doing our little bit of how we are wired. Well, I think the person who's in the building department is just as important as the surgeon in a hospital. And I'll tell you why. I, uh, last week, no, the week before that, last I was, teach, uh, was speaking before the management leadership team of a large ho- Catholic hospital system, uh, actually Kansas-based. They're in Kansas, Montana, uh, Colorado, and Oklahoma, the Sisters of Charity, uh, Leavenworth uh, group. And, and they had their uh, annual uh, uh, senior management meeting, who are mostly non-sisters. They're, they're medical professionals. Of all places, it was in Las Vegas. That struck me as odd. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. It was... So anyway, uh, I'm in Las Vegas with these sisters, and having, a, having a good old time. And usually when I speak before corporations, they don't have a, a reflection or a prayer or something before, and they did. So that was, I was very moved by it. And in the, the written devotion, I wish I had brought it with me, the written devotion they had in the program, they talked about um, praying for the, uh, the surgeon, the, the accuracy of the surgeon's hand and the accuracy of, of preparing a clean bill for the, for, for the patient. And, and I almost started crying. And I'm not a, like a teary kind of a guy, but I welled up and, and, and someone noticed and they asked me afterwards why. And the reason, my wife has a chronic illness. She used to be able to practice law and, and she's now disabled. And we spend an awful lot of time uh, at doctor's offices. Maybe some of you have that in your life, uh, in your own life, your parents or friends. Uh, and that week I was in Las Vegas. Karen had spent 
no exaggeration, the better part of 35 hours, 35 hours on the telephone with four different, with a medical provider, uh, the bill collection agency who were wrongly notified. I won't bore you with all the parties, but four parties all trying to, all pointing fingers because the initial bill was not cleanly prepared. And we were completely in the right. We weren't liable for the bill. It should have been paid by the insurance company. But because of a flaw at the beginning of the system, it exploded and expanded through the rest. 35 hours. Now, my wife is extremely smart, extremely well-educated, very dogged, very persistent, but she's also disabled. And it just ex it wiped her out. Now, imagine the person who's maybe not so well-educated, who, who's older or who's frail or who is intimidated by authority and power structures. Clean bills matter. That's a calling if you're in a billing department or accounts receivable department. That stuff matters. That, that's holy work when it's done well and accurately. So while we can talk about it, and I spend a lot of time, as Michael Lindsay says in the title of his book, In the Halls of Power, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by it and always have to make sure I don't get seduced by it. Um, I'm always reminded of stories about the clean bill of health and the woman that's doing that. Uh, I heard another woman talk about, uh, and I just loved it, that the, she was a banquet waitress, and she talked about her calling as a banquet waitress and how the head chef, I guess that's sort of a prima donna world. Uh, uh, Nabil, you could tell me better, but if you're in a fine restaurant, sometimes head chefs can be a little bit fussy, I'm told. Uh, and that head chef was using uh, the N-word to uh, one of the African-American employees, and, and that person was just not sort of able to stand up to it. Um, and, uh, and this woman finally uh, stood up to the head chef, realizing she'd probably get fired for it. And she said, uh, you don't do that to people. That is not right. And she stood up to him. And she realized that's when she found her space. She found her feet, her ground on which to stand. And she realized that she could have a calling as a, as a banquet waitress. It's the challenge of finding our space and then having the courage and conviction to do it. But that's what our, our faith helps us. And for those who may not have faith as an extra challenge, uh, courage and conviction, it, it can be harder. The trading floor. A friend of mine in New Jersey works on a, on a securities trading floor, a pit as they're sometimes called. Some of you may know that world. Uh, and Catherine, to what I've heard you comment once or twice, as you know, in the financial world, if you're in a trading pit, they don't talk so pretty, do they? <laughs> it's a pretty vulgar, earthy, cussing and swearing, effing and blinding kind of, kind of environment. Uh, and this man, he's told me I could use names, Tom, um, he was bothered by that. He was a Christian. He was active in a faith at work group I started at our church back in Princeton many years ago when we used to live in Princeton before moving back. And, um, and he said, well, should I say something about this? Should I do something? I said, I don't know. What do you think? And he said, well, I can get my mind around them cursing with other words, but it's starting to bother me when they take my Lord's name in vain. And I said, what do you think you should do about it? And I told him of a story I'd heard somewhere else that what he did is he ended up taking a styrofoam cup and put the, wrote the words on it, swearing cup. And he put it in his desk and he then told everyone, he said, you can cuss all you want, but when, when you are within my space, my trading desk, if you use the words, Lord's name in vain, it's five bucks. Now, he had a little scale even, I think. I think Jesus Christ was five bucks. 
gosh damn it. You know, he had a scale. I forget his hierarchy, but, you know, they were all having fun. But he found a winsome and a funny way to make a point. And people, he said, oddly enough, he said they actually did stop doing it. They did stop doing it. Another story, uh, and I shouldn't mention the name of this, but uh, um, uh, the company, so I won't, but uh, we all know the products. It's one of the, probably the top entertainment uh, firm in the world, or one of the tops in terms of movies and everything else they do. And their CEO is known as being one tough son of a gun who also would curse a blue streak. And one of his EVPs uh, 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 finally had the same hit a wall and finally went up, recognizing it could be a career-ending conversation, uh, uh, and said he would invite that CEO to stop saying Jesus Christ uh, or God whatever and swearing. And the man was stunned by that uh, and mumbled something, and the conversation was over. Fast forward, three months later, they were at a, a spouse event, a couple's event, some dinner, a recognition event, and that CEO's wife came running over to my friend and said, what did you say to him? He's actually stopped swearing now, or most of the time. <laughs> so this, this question of courage, uh, finding a winsome, sometimes witty, sometimes playful way uh, to take someone gently aside, not to publicly embarrass them, well, that's part of the, the integration box, part of the spheres, part of creating a healthy, um, clean workplace, which is, I think, what Christians are called to do. Um, this next one, Tyson Foods, let me go forward to show you a slide for this. Oh, we'll have a little open mic time here in a minute, but let's see here. Now, you all have seen core value statements. Most of your companies probably have one, particularly if you're in a large employer. Everybody has them. And let's face it, most people never read these things. They're boring, they're blah, 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 blah. We promise to be ethical, blah, blah, blah. We like our people, blah, blah, blah. They're our best asset, blah, 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 until we fired them, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, John Tyson is a friend of mine. He's given me permission to, to share some of this. Um, uh, he's the, the chairman, had been chairman CEO, now he's the chairman um, of uh, Tyson Foods, the world's largest beef, poultry, and pork producer. Uh, one in four meals served are a Tyson Foods product in the United States. They're a global company now, 110,000 employees. They're a Fortune 70 company. Um, and, and by the way, John would say if he were here, and I want to share also to preempt this story and maybe one or two others I'll tell, is that this isn't meant to be a commercial for Tyson Foods. Buy whatever you want. Nor am I trying to say they're a perfect company. Uh, they are a fallen organization like any other and one of the things I admire about John is that he's trying to change the culture and change some things and how they do business as, at an industry level as well as also in, in how he uh, runs his, his team. Uh, about, time has flown now, but about six years ago they bought um, uh, IBP, the big uh, Iowa beef and uh, pork, and became, uh, this was a massive merger. It was actually a reverse takeover. Tyson was a little bit smaller. It was all over the papers. It was a, it was a messy acquisition. And two very different cultures of these two companies uh, the, the, the joke, the inside joke was that the, the IBP people were like the Germans and the, um, uh, and, and the Tyson Foods folks were like the French. So there's a little culture clash as far as intensity and management style. Uh, and John felt that he owed it to this new culture to articulate the value set, the core values uh, of what the company was going to be about. Now, it's a little bit, and he asked me to help him with that. He came to uh, an Avada Institute event I had done in 2001, I think it was, called Making Your Company Faith-Friendly, 
question mark. You remember we talked about the, this morning, faith-friendly concept. And he was intrigued by that. And he liked the distinction of it not being faith-based but faith-friendly. So he invited me to come work with him and his management team, which I've then been doing now for several years uh, and have become uh, very, very uh, familiar with the firm as a result and its leaders. So we came up with this. And actually, if you read this, it's really almost like a theological statement. And I went from the Fortune 20 and took each of their core values statement and, and printed them off the Internet and laid them out on my dining room table. And they were all were really bland and just about the same. And I said, John, if this is going to stick, you need to make it a little bit different. And, and um, oh, here we go. And this did happen, actually. <laughs> the, the legal department has gone over our corporate code of ethics manual and has underlined and highlighted what they consider to be the really funny stuff. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> and I'm going to underline, I'm going to show you what they underlined. I read these two lines. Publicly traded company. Who we are, what we do, how we do it. We strive to be a faith-friendly company. We strive to honor God and be respectful of each other, our customers, and other stakeholders. There's a few things there. Obviously, there's this God language, this faith language, which you don't see in many publicly traded companies, uh, and certainly one where it's not been part of the DNA, where, where it's an active change made now. Uh, companies like ServiceMaster, although they just recently got bought by a private equity firm, that's been part of their culture, so we know that. Uh, some privately held firms, it's been part of the culture. We know that. But for, to make that as an active change, imagine being talking with the analyst that day on the phone and say, you know, what's this, this God business we're seeing in your statement? What's that mean? Uh, when the, the, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget we had a, um, uh, a meeting about 110 of the top officers of Tyson Foods to come in, and among other things, the agenda was the new core value statement. And John asked me to present it, uh, and he also said, I'm going to leave the room during this part of the presentation because I don't want people to think this is Johnny's thing because people knew he was a very committed Christian. Um, he's had a, a difficult life, uh, 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 not in the sense of maybe like someone in Somalia, but he's had a, a, cha a challenging life, public admission of being a, a substance abuse and a whole bunch of problems, divorce, and he struggled. But he's, you know, he's going in all the right directions. So he said, I don't want to be there because people might think this is just my hobby horse, and then I want you to tell me what did they really say. <laughs> Well, a big debate back and forth. Should we do this? And uh, back and forth, back and forth. And in the main, people loved the faith-friendly concept, but were a little nervous about it. The general counsel was freaking out. And they were, they were very concerned about the strive to honor God, um, uh, whether or not that should be in. The main were his lawsuits. And would they be would this uh, uh, steer away uh, potential employees, or would it actually be a positive thing? Well, one guy finally stood up, and it, it was, he brought, brought the house down. He said, look, you know, we get sued for so many things as a big company that we have or haven't done. Wouldn't it be nice to finally be sued for something we believe in? <laughs> and sure enough, that just, everyone said, yeah, they did it. So they've passed it. They've not had any lawsuits yet. They will someday. Uh, in this country, you get sued just for breathing. But... Um, uh, but it's now part of their DNA. It's extraordinary. You'll notice the other thing in there. It's a small thing. I didn't underline it in all the places. I think in uh, six of the, or five of the, the nine bullet points there, you'll see the verb to strive. Now look it up in the dictionary. It's a strong verb. It's not we'll think about it, we'll give it a whirl, we're working on it. It's, no, we'll strive. It's earnest work and practice and striving. The first, one of the first versions of this that Johnny and I were playing around with, it said, we are this, we are that, we are this, we are that. And I said, Johnny, I, I hate to tell you, you aren't. I mean, I'm not either, but you 
firstly, and your company is. It's just the way it is. And all the Dilberts of the world, all the younger folks in your, in your corporation, they're, they're just going to ignore it. They're going to say, this is a joke, because they could give you 10 examples of when the company has fallen short of that. So if it's an aspirational goal, and it's not just some powder puff thing, find a strong verb that acknowledges your mistakes, but makes it show that you're really serious about it. So they put, we strive. Uh, and and uh, another man, um, as a result of this, like six months later, he gave, he opened, a, again, as one of these senior management team meetings, he gave a presentation that opened with a, a sexist joke. And about a third of the people laughed uproariously. It's a very male-dominated culture, white male-dominated culture. This, this, some of you may know, being in Kansas City, the whole uh, 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 food, uh, this part of the food industry, the meat business. Uh, and so about a third of the people laughed. About a third of the people were like mm, a little uneasy. About a third of the people were deeply offended. And they printed up, and I, they printed up these little wallet cards at one point, and um, with these things on there. And uh, at the break, one woman took this guy aside, uh, let's call him Charlie, and said, "Who was the one of the number three executive at the time?" And said, "Charlie, what you just did is not in keeping with our core values about honoring God. That doesn't honor God. What you just said and being respectful of each other." Well, Charlie's a tough hombre, and he's not used to being upbraided. Uh, he's used to being king of the hill. Uh, he gets, I was about to speak then next after the break. He says, excuse me, David, can I have the mic for a minute? He came up, and this grown man, and began with tears as I say, I owe all of you an apology. And then he explained, he apologized specifically what he did, and he said he would work on it, and he thanked um, the person for her courage to come to him, and he thanked the chairman for uh, putting this kind of uh, concept together to articulate it. These were people of faith, People of faith turning to their faith in the corporate world. Work is a calling. So Tyson Foods could be in, is involved just about, as I say, every tough issue, environmental issues, uh, animal rights issues, um, um, uh, undocumented worker issues. It's a tough place to be. But I find that one of the most exciting companies to do advisory work for because they are in, they're in the thick of it. They are not in some sort of clean, easy, safe little industry. They're there where it's tough. And I say, God bless them. God bless them. Well, we'll go to open mic here in a moment, but I'll uh, leave you with this, just a couple collecting thoughts before we go to open mic. So if you have any, and David, you jump in with time management here. I'll take a couple questions if that works. Um, so uh, feel free just to stand up or start wandering towards the, the mic um, uh, or just holler from where you are and I'll repeat the question if it's not captured. But I want to, uh, for I think there's three different constituencies here today. We've got uh, a, a handful of clergy, not just the local staff, but I've met a couple of clergy who are here from other churches in your community. Uh, and to you folks, I would urge you to be uh, intentional in your uh, theological uh, and your theology, your ecclesiology, and pastoral as you walk alongside your folks in the marketplace. Uh, don't let it be an accident, but be intentional. Uh, secondly, if you're in the marketplace, uh, also be intentional in how you integrate your faith. Play around with this integration box. Maybe that can give you language and a framework to start thinking of a broader way of conceiving of your work, however high and mighty or low and humble, that all are equal in God's sight and all have the potential to be avodah, work, worship, and uh, service. Uh, and play with this idea of being faith-friendly. And, and I want to put a footnote to that if I wasn't clear. When I say be faith-friendly, some people have criticized me in our Christian community for me being a, a relativist or not standing up for the gospel. I say, no, no, man, I'm obviously not doing a good job explaining myself. 
I, I, I am prepared to have um, as long a conversation with anyone who wants to talk about the gospel and who Jesus is and why I think he is who he said he is. But I sort of, or is it Peter, I, I sort of go with the be prepared to make a gentle defense of that which you believe as opposed to coming in on my high and mighty uh, horse. Um, so faith friendly doesn't mean abdicate what you believe. It doesn't mean don't talk about it, but it means start with respecting the other person also of a child of God and start there. So I just want to want to qualify that if I came across as um, all religions are equal. Uh, that's, that's not my point from, a, from an epistemological, from a, a truth claims uh, point of view. Um, and uh, if you're an academic, the couple or three of us poor souls that are here in that world, uh, 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 likewise, try to bring faith into the um, academic discourse as a legitimate part of thinking to honor that part of our brain and that part of our discipline. By the way, before the first question, if, if any of you are sort of remotely interested in these questions, and, and uh, I send out a newsletter from time to time on this whole area of faith and work, uh, when we're done, just put your business card or write out your name and your email address uh, and put it up here, and I'll add you to our, our newsletter, uh, which we send out now and then. So with that, what's on your mind about stuff I've been talking about or anything? Yes, ma'am. I'm trying to decide if I'm a hypocrite or not. I... Uh... <laughs> I work in a two-person office where the boss owns the business, and for the last three and a half years, I've known that she's been engaging in tax evasion, mm. but now she knows I know. Mm. And she's very um, anti-Christian because she's been wounded by a mm. legalistic uh, background. Mm. So I, I wonder if you have any words of wisdom for you know, I've even thought, well, now I need to quit, or mm. you know, what do what what to even do in the face of that, given this now long history of being a testimony to her yeah. in the workplace. Well, um, first, I applaud you for uh, the powerfulness of that question and the candor of it, uh, and and I'd be uh, disingenuous if I said, oh, here's the simple answer. Uh, let me start with the safe answer, and that's as you're probably doing, pray about it. Um, uh, and ask also some others to pray for you about it, uh, people who know you that you feel you could trust and share this with. Uh, it is stunning how often through prayer uh, answers and fresh ways will be revealed that uh, don't happen when we aren't in a, a posture of prayer or even fasting, as was pointed out earlier. Um, you've got practical matters, matters to think about, legal, legal matters and spiritual matters. Uh, uh, over time... Uh, if uh, the gig is up and the authorities, uh, legal authorities or regulatory authorities find out or tax authorities about what uh, this uh, person is doing, you may be found culpable yourself because you um, uh, had knowledge and didn't come forth. Or you might be later pressured, if you feel under pressure now, because uh, the boss knows you know in months to come, you might be under even more pressure if an investigation starts and um, uh, she might flip the coin and actually say that you did it. That's kind of what happened at WorldCom, by the way. The one woman who was asked, uh, it was a mid-level accounting manager, wasn't it, Catherine, who was uh, asked to falsely book some transactions to make the quarterly numbers. And she was no different than, than you or me, just a good person. And she was making an awful lot of money, more than anyone else did there. She just got promoted, and she was afraid to jeopardize her job, so she said yes. The problem, by the way, with one, of the pro one of the problems, of many problems with financial fraud, is um, if you're booking, let's say the fraud happens to be booking more revenue than actually has occurred, uh, is that there's this little irritating thing called compounding interest that if, if you don't 
make the transaction, if you don't square it off the next quarter, it just gets bigger each month and bigger each month. And that's why all, these small things later become horrific because of compounding interest. Um, and she was later blamed for that, and she had to defend herself. So you have a, uh, a watch your backside question there. Uh, then I suppose you come down to the question of do you uh, quietly resign and move on, but that may have financial ramifications for your well-being and your medical plan. Uh, or do you actually encounter her um, and him or her and, and say, we, we need to talk. I, I can no longer continue to work here. Uh, it's um, You can choose to do what you want to do, but uh, I, I cannot in good conscience keep, keep working here. Um, I would suggest, and maybe it's just my own style, someone else might be right to come in with a sledgehammer and, and really sort of bang your fist on the table. I, I'd urge coming in... Um, uh, strongly but humbly as, a, uh, as opposed to coming in strongly and judgmentally and uh, not question her motivations or the whys but say I appreciate here's where we are uh, I'd like to see if we can unwind this uh, series of transactions and if you're not willing to then I, I need to quietly we need to work on a, on a separation plan where you take care of me appropriately and, and, uh, and we move on but those would be some thoughts um, but I would ground it in prayer. I'd ground it and go back and look at different um, parables and stories in the Bible. Read, go back and read Proverbs. Go back and read Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. Uh, um, read some of the Jesus's great parables. Play around, and um, and I wish you peace in that. One last footnote, good news, whatever you do, whether you end up having like the winning strategy and it's happy ending and the angels sing and there's rounds of applause, or whether you go into a real dark period where, where it's pretty difficult, the good news is the Christian claim is that you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness. Other questions? Wow, I have a friend who talks about level five relationships. Like, you know, there's all the surface chatty, chatty stuff and you're at a cocktail party and you get to know you. And level five is when, like, you really get to the real stuff. We got to the real stuff right away. <laughs> so I, I thank you for that. And that speaks to the trust of this community that you could put that kind of uh, real serious question out. What else is on people's minds of any, of any level? One through five is fine. Yes, sir. Ah, Nabil, sure. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Did you all hear that? You, how Michael talked about when in um, uh, witnessing situations, instead of answering every question that's thrust at you, to, as Jesus did often invert that and ask a question back of the question and play with it a bit. And that's what Nabil was saying, that that may be a way to say, ma'am, what, you know, boss, what would you have me do? Uh, what would you have me do? We know we each can agree it's, this is unethical. However we got here is maybe immaterial, but we are here now. What would you have me do? might be very interesting. Because maybe, should, maybe, maybe not, but maybe she say, I want to get out of this situation and I don't know how. Well, then, then if she doesn't believe it's unethical, then, then you'll say, well, gosh, we clearly have a difference of opinions. Maybe ask her a few more questions. Pursue that line of uh, asking more questions as opposing making allegations and then... Um, then say, well, we'll need to think of something here that's, that's, uh, that's fair. Um, yeah, great. Yes, sir? Uh, one, one thing about asking for a settlement from someone in that situation, uh, say, we need to have an amicable parting of the ways. And it is a bit of a euphemism, what I just said, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But, but you don't, uh, you want to be careful you don't open yourself up to a charge of Yeah. 
Fair point, and that's why I, I wasn't trying to be cute with words. I, I didn't say I want a settlement and then I'll leave peacefully. I said we need to have an amicable parting, and I intentionally meant that to be vague. But, but you're right, you don't want to have someone think you, you're blackmailing them. Um, uh, you mean just what you said, I want to have an amicable parting, and whatever that will, let's define what that compromises. Uh, and it may not have any financial settlement, or, um, or it may be uh, that you stay on, uh, uh, you get instead of the normal, whatever might a normal severance might be, uh, that it might be double the length of that, or you may be on medical package a bit longer. But um, yeah, you don't want to give any hint of, of um, uh, bullying or blackmailing in the person. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. I don't remember the answer. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that, that's something that it would be, if, if we were in a smaller setting, we'd, that would be a great hour-long conversation, wouldn't it? Um, but I can share a couple tips if you want of what I've seen some others do. Um, and I, I'm going to have a chapter on this in, in one of the books I'm working on, and I've got a long list of sort of like one through a hundred of no magical order uh, but one of the things, I'm, I'm an old Boy Scout from when I was a kid, and I remember going to scout camp, and never swim alone, never swim alone. So I have a buddy system. Uh, it helps to stay ethically fresh to have at least one, if not a handful of people in what you may call an accountability group, and a real one, a real one, not like a social one where you all just pat each other on the back for how great you are, but where, but where you let them know what your vulnerabilities are, and they you, and you have honest assessments and stock-taking. Uh, that probably is one of the best insulators against um, uh, mistakes. Uh, another thing I would say is stay, um, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the big JC. Try to stay in close relationship with, with, with Christ. Uh, and when you find yourself slipping out of that, it doesn't mean crisis of faith per se, but you just life is busy or you fall out of your good habits, uh, do what you need to do to get back into that, that relationship with Christ. Um, There's the, um, the 3M test that's often good if you're actually trying to make a quick ethical call on something you're not quite sure to do, and that's the, the what would my mom say? <laughs> what would the media say? And what would my mentor say? And you get those faces of conscience that come up, flash up before you. Um, if you're in a fast-paced job that can get a little heady at times, uh, and people tell you how wonderful you are, be careful you don't believe you own press. Uh, a lot of really good folks who get into some of those fast lane positions slip into that, uh, that habit. One friend of mine, um, Greg Page, who's he's given me permission to share this, he's the uh, um, CEO of Cargill. Some of you know it, one of the largest privately held firms in the, in the world, uh, Minneapolis-based. Um, and he talks about the book of James, you know, in the James... Uh, it talks about having a mirror, uh, a mirror in front of you, and he's picked as he's uh, he's done this not just since being CEO, but his whole career. He has, I think, he told me, fourteen people in the organization that he calls his mirrors, and he and it's precisely coming out of the Book of James, uh, and the. Mirrors are people he has given professional permission, and some of them, like one I think is a, cust- a custodian, uh, and some of the others are very senior executives and everything in between, and he's given them permission to call him out and to take him aside and to say, boss, you just did X, and that is not in keeping with our seven principles that guide this company. 
That takes guts to do that and to know that he's not going to shoot the postman. So what are your mirrors, inside or outside the company? Um, those would be a handful of things, and there's, there's um, many others, and maybe that'd be a great uh, uh, project or class for a couple of you to get together and say, oh, how do we stay ethically fresh? What are the tips and techniques, some unique and grounded to our faith, that can help guide us and keep us on the right path, and others just sort of good common sense things that we can come up with. Um, there'll be a lot, there'll be a lot. Other questions? Yes, sir. Love your T-shirt, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I want to lower the the bar for a minute, and um... <laughs> which, which, as a speaker, quickly tells you you're about to get nailed with a really good question. <laughs> with your I, humble way, carry on. I, uh, I'm 21. I'm fresh out of high school, basically, mm-hmm. and I've spent the last couple few years in um, working in automotive shops and uh, uh, automotive industry. I have a friend that works in a body shop. My brother works in a factory. Mm-hmm where you come in contact with people who don't have a biblical outlook. Mm-hmm. And I'm struggled to find advice from, for an environment where articulation and respect is just not appreciated. Hmm. And um, I come in contact with constant using Christ's name in vain. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Jokes and comments where you want to take a shower by the time you leave work, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Very disgusting, vulgar mm-hmm. environment. And I'm, I'm trying to be a, a light in that environment. Mm. And just, I just wanted to reflect. I just wanted to get yeah. your reflections. Well, well, first, uh, man, amen for that question. And I applaud your own um, articulation of that, that you're trying to be salt and light in a certain work environment that's tough. Um, you know, I, I just, my wife and I are just driving up to... Um, upstate New York to visit our niece who's a freshman at, at college at, uh, there and uh, about 120 miles into the drive our car broke down and it was the uh, uh, wheel bearings that they had just done the repair on yesterday at the shop um, and it, luckily I had just decelerated to stop at a toll booth to pay the toll and I was just starting to accelerate again uh, had I been going 80 miles an hour like I was five minutes earlier we probably would have had an off the road nasty accident uh, so I'm breaking out in a cold sweat, and I uh, I call the mechanic and uh, the the garage. It was a uh, and the owner and, uh, get his voicemail with his cell phone listed on it. Of course, it was after hours, so I call him on his cell phone, and it was extraordinary. He said, he said, "Wow, first of all, are, where are you? Are you off the road? And are you safe?" He says, "Worry about my safety first. I said, "I'm safe," and he said, "Tell me what happened." I told him. He said, "Well, I said I hate to say this, but we must have made a mistake." He was honest. He wasn't worried about me suing him. And he said, uh, uh, do you have AAA? And yeah, and we did, he said, if you, you do what you want, but I would recommend to it back. I want to make you good on that. Uh, and I'll lend you a car so you can get to your niece's event at school. So we did that. So I tell you that, which is obviously isn't what you're describing, uh, but to say he's a, he's a practicing Catholic and, uh, and a solid trooper, a solid citizen. So I want to give you hope that within your, your line of work, there are some models out there. You can do it the way this guy is doing it. And guess what? I've now told that story at least 30 times. Uh, about Palumbo's Garage in Guilford, Connecticut. And everyone's going to go to Palumbo's now because they know they could trust the guy. Uh, it was extraordinary. They paid for the... AAA paid for most of my towing. The differential they didn't, uh, he paid for. Uh, just amazing. 
And I found out later it was his wife's car he gave me. <laughs> so maybe the reason you're where you are right now is maybe there's two things going on. One is you are meant to be salt and light with these other guys around you where it's pretty ugly sometimes. And as you sort of said, this sort of this filthy uh, sort of image. Um, um, and that's part of your testing. And God wants to refine you to say, which way are you going to go? Are you going to capitulate ultimately and be one of them? Or are you going to somehow be the best mechanic or whatever your role there is, be the best one, come to learn all the best from Because some of these guys are probably pretty talented. And learn the best and all you can from them. And maybe fast forward, you said you're 21. Maybe when you're 41, you're going to be owning the garage like the guy I just talked about, about Pete Palumbo's garage. And it's going to be yours. And it's going to be the Hot Chili Peppers uh, garage. And you're going to operate according to biblical standards. So, you know, life is... I don't know, I must sound like an old geezer, but it does have a trajectory. And, and sometimes some of those worst situations in your now, uh, you won't know it now, but this is part of your character-building moment. Um, we often pray I've had enough character-building, God. Thank you, let's move on to the good time. Um, but instead of fleeing that place, if you're good at this, if, if you're good with your hands and your mind and solving problems and fixing things, I'd say stay there. Um, Try to figure out, practice different ways of telling the guys to cool it or to chill out. Maybe you do a swearing cup. I don't know. Maybe you'll fail at it, but you'll practice. You probably won't work at that particular garage forever, um, but you'll learn. And in the next, and in a few years, you're going to be the model kind of person and the model kind of employer, and you can attract really talented, neat people. So um, I'd say press on and hang in there. Yeah, that's great. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Did y'all hear that the people will notice if you're di- if you're in a place that's a, a hostile work environment or just sort of messy or f- just full of sin and gook, <laughs> uh, people will notice if you're different. You're right. Um, and stuff happens. Not immediately, but stuff happens. That, that's positive. You you will be um, amply rewarded for your faithfulness. Um, so yeah. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Sure. Well, first, uh, bless you for being one of those people. Um, uh, uh, and in some ways, I'm probably the worst person in the world to give advice on that um, because my wife and I weren't able to have kids, so we're a doting aunt and uncle uh, to our five nieces and our five godchildren. Um, uh, but I did have a, uh, become a little more familiar with uh, the questions of non-paid work uh, once I was giving a talk at a church, my wife was, uh, was just after she had been diagnosed with MS and was no longer able to practice law, and uh, I was talking about vocation and work as a calling, and, and afterwards she was just in tears. I thought, well, what, what happened? She said, what about me? You talk to everybody but me. I can no longer work and be paid. Her whole identity was just gone, just shot. Um, so I've come to have a deep, uh, it's not my specialty space, I'm not the best at it, but I have a deep respect for that and a deep awareness of it. Um, Probably the first thing I'd say is to claim your own space and to sort of stand tall and erect that, that you are a mom, you are a homemaker, and that is a glorious profession and an extremely important one. Uh, and if you're working with others who need, have special needs and help, be they aged people or others, that's a glorious profession. We now have several people in our lives like that. I couldn't be here if it weren't for someone being with my wife right now. Um, and some of that work is volunteer and some is, some is paid. Mostly it's, it's non-paid, and I hugely respect for it. But I would feel proud. Um, 
I've been to a lot of uh, dinner events where sometimes the spouse, uh, typically the wife, might say, I say, you know, what, you know, what do you do when you're not at dinners like this? And uh, I intentionally don't say, what's your job? Just what do you do? And often they'll say, well, I'm, I'm just a wife, or I'm just a mom, or I'm just a householder. And I say, no, get rid of that word just. Be proud of it. And your kids in the society will be proud that you're doing it. So uh, claim it as legitimate theological space and uh, recognize that money is, well, on the one hand, money is a great metric because we can get some sense of performance with it. Uh, it's also a really problematic one because some professions like teaching, like being a mom, like being a caretaker, uh, don't do well with financial barometers. Um, and I hope you're surrounded with uh, people who uh, from time to time say thank you. So uh, to all you moms and homemakers out there, thank you. Uh, and I could tell that you want to do something. Yeah, let's thank David for all these uh, great sharing.